the uh, sermon reading today is Isaiah chapter 25, the entire chapter. And if you're reading from a church Bible, you'll find it on page 1006. The heading is Praise to the Lord. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride, despite their cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. Well, I should have introduced myself before. If uh, you are new, it's great to have you with us. My name is Pete Stacey. And uh, as well, look at this chapter. There's just so many lovely uh, and graphic images uh, throughout it. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at uh, chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 9. Now today, we're jumping up to chapter 25. So I thought it might be helpful if I gave just a, a little bit of an overview of the book of Isaiah, just so we can get our bearings. Because we're obviously, you know, kangaroo hopping through a lot of it very quickly. Uh, the whole book is a mixture of judgment and hope. And it's divided into two main halves. Chapters 1 to 39 are primarily about judgment against Israel because of their rebellion against God, uh, their unfaithfulness to his covenant. And then this judgment widens in those chapters to include all the nations of the world. And then chapters 40 to 66 bring glorious hope to all people because God is faithful to his promises. He keeps his covenant. Now, if we zoom in now on just that first half, uh, chapters 1 to 6 introduce this theme of judgment. And the shocking news there is that Syria and Babylon are going to be used by God. They're Israel's enemies, but they're going to be used by God to punish and refine God's people like a purifying fire sweeping through. Isaiah's job 
is to tell God's people. What's worse, God says, they're not going to listen to you, buddy. (laughs) Tough gig. Chapter 7 to 12 then is a personal warning against uh, Israel's king Ahaz. But in the middle of chapter 9, God promises hope and salvation. Remember last week? Through a baby. Through a little baby who would become king forever. And then there's this large section, chapters 13 to 23 and 28 right down to 35, contain message after message after message of God's judgment for lots of individual nations. No one gets missed out. And then chapters 36 to 39, it kind of divides the book in half by providing some historical background for all this turbulent time. Now, I've missed out a bit there, haven't I? Chapters 24 to 27, they're kind of like a condensed version of the whole book. Chapter 24 announces God's universal judgment for universal sin. This is a global thing. And uh, this is how it starts. The Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He'll ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people. For the master as for his servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor, the earth will be completely laid waste. No one is going to escape this devastation. But out of this devastation, chapters 25 to 27 describe how God will protect and rescue and bless his people. Not not just joy in this life, but a hope of a heavenly celebration That lasts forever. Now we're looking at chapter 5, which means our focus today is all joy and hope. Yeah. So let's pray that God will help us understand it. Let's pray. Dear Father, please help us see the amazing hope and joy you are offering to us here in this chapter. And to understand how it can be truly ours in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by definition, a prophet is someone through whom God speaks to people. But one of the delightful things about Isaiah is that he so often pours his heart out back to God. It's lovely. Um, The opening of this chapter is more like a a shout or a psalm of praise. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. It could be just ripped out of the psalms, couldn't it? There's lots of psalms like that. Uh, throughout the book of Isaiah, there's lots of both judgment and hope, but the whole book is peppered with praise. So good. And it's a great way to live. No matter what's going on in our lives, let's learn to, to see how he's working all things for our good. And then be quick to give him thanks, to count our blessings and to praise him for what he's doing in our lives. One of my favourite Bible verses illustrates this point so well. Philippians 4 verse 6, I know many of you know it, I've prayed it with, with many people over the years. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. There it is, right in the middle of uh, whatever's going on. Present your request to God. So in this passage, Isaiah identifies two great reasons to praise God. Firstly, his character, God's character. Verse 1 ends with these words, For in perfect faithfulness 
You've done wonderful things, things planned long ago. God's response to the problems in the world are not a knee-jerk reaction. He's not doing his block in frustration. He's not defensive. He's, He's never taken by surprise. The words perfect faithfulness link God's present action to the promises he has made long ago. Isaiah sees God's action as a measured, timely and just response from the God who knows all, the God who sees all and the God who works all things according to his plan. Secondly, Isaiah praises God for for the the specific actions as well. In verse 2, we see fortresses are leveled and foreigners crushed. In other words, all that stands in opposition to God and his people will one day be defeated. In verse 4, God is described, this beautiful picture, as a refuge for the poor and needy. Because, as verse 5 says, he silenced the foreigners and broken the power of the ruthless. Good news to people who are powerless, poor, suffering and threatened. Two weeks ago, I caught up with a friend who's returned from helping Ukrainian refugees. The relief and gratitude is obvious when the struggle and oppression is so great. But did you notice the startling message in verse 3? Instead of being destroyed completely, God's judgment on the strong and the ruthless oppressors is going to produce faith. Therefore, strong peoples will Honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. Literally worship you. This is a clear indication of God's plan to save Gentiles along with Jews. Remember, we're way back in the Old Testament still at this point. To save the ruthless as well as the oppressed. Chapter 24 began with a cataclysmic judgment on all peoples. Many will be lost. But here we see that God has planned renewal and hope and salvation for all peoples too. Many will be saved. Because of God's grace and love, heaven's door is wide enough for all who trust in him. And I think this is where God's grace gets really challenging for us because it's so countercultural. We like it when good things come to good people, and we like to think of ourselves as good people, and when bad people get what they deserve. The number of times I've seen someone go through a red light and think, oh, I wish there was a cop here right now. <laughs> but, but, but grace is shocking because it opens heaven to all who turn and trust in God. Grace means your neighbour in heaven could be someone who really hurt you on earth. Someone who perhaps was ruthless and cruel. How could God let them into heaven? Here's how. Because grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver and nothing to the receiver. 
It's given to those, to us, who don't deserve it, but recognise we need it. That's why God alone gets the glory for our salvation. Because Jesus did all the work when he died on the cross. In the end, grace means that no one is too bad to be saved. And the challenge for us is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. And then as we come into verses 6 and to 8, what an extraordinary picture of joy and delight it is for those who are saved. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove from his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Verse 6 is a, a picture of great abundance and joyful fellowship. We don't appreciate it nearly enough because a quick walk, walk through Woolies and BWS, uh, we see more rich food and aged wine than many people in the world see in a lifetime. Right? That's just the way it is. We must not let the beauty and blessing of living in Australia blind us to the wonder of heaven or our desperate need to be saved. Friends, Shell Harbour is not paradise. Peace with God is paradise. No matter how comfortable we feel now, we need to be so careful that we don't let it dull our faith or our urgency of sharing Christ with others because unforgiven sin is 100% fatal for eternity. You see that repeated phrase on this mountain in verse 6 and verse 7 and again later in verse 10. It's a poetic description of Jerusalem, God's holy city. And verses 6 and 10 envision the joyful celebration in this heavenly Jerusalem that God will bring. An idea that's that's echoed by Jesus and again by Paul and the writer of the Hebrews and and John in the book of Revelation as well. But verse 7 uses the, the phrase on this mountain, pointing to a literal moment in the literal Jerusalem. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Friends, death is awful. It's God's ultimate judgment on human sin. You will surely die, he said. And death has been swallowing up person after person after person since Adam and Eve first rebelled. But when Jesus rose again on the very mountain of Jerusalem, he swallowed up death itself. He destroyed its power. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter all about resurrection, he says that death is swallowed up in victory. Praise Jesus, absolutely. And this will be true for every believer when death is defeated by our own resurrection when Jesus comes again. 
Try to say, a resurrected body is not a resuscitated corpse. (laughs) It's a whole new order of life that can never be touched by death again. And who's it for? In verses 6 to 8, notice the repeated word all. Verses 6 and 7, all peoples. Verse 7, all nations. And in verse 8, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. What a beautiful intimate picture. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. God's grace, it reaches far and wide. And yet it's so very, very personal. It reinforces the idea that we saw back in verse 3. And shows us who's included in the banquet. That word all. It doesn't mean what some people call universalism. That's an idea that everyone will eventually somehow be saved and go to heaven. Some forms of universal even include demons and the devil himself in that. Ultimately, it'll just be one big happy party. Uh, Isaiah doesn't say that. The rest of the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, Isaiah repeatedly says that only a remnant, a portion of Israel will be saved through God's judgment. And here and in several other places, he clearly adds that there, there will be simply a remnant from all nations, from all peoples among those who are saved. People from all nations will be saved, not all people from all nations throughout all time will be saved. Big difference. In verse 8, it's hard to miss the echo of uh, Revelation 21 that, that John read last week. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. Prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. That's a picture of that heavenly banquet about to start. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Beautiful picture. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Bring it on. How amazing will that be? For the old order of things has passed away. What a beautiful description of the new heavenly Jerusalem. And then we come to what I think is the key verse of this whole chapter. Verse 9. It's projected into the future. In that day, they will say, uh, and the people of God are in his presence, enjoying the heavenly banquet and looking back with grateful hearts on the faithfulness of God. And it reveals the key to heaven. Now, if you've got a kid's sheet, which I doubt you have, but anyway, this is on the kid's sheet. And it's, the question simply says, circle the four words that are repeated. So have a look at it. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. What's the answer for the kids? We trusted in him. That's those repeated words. Friends, it's not enough to merely know about God. We must personally trust him. You can know about a car and even hold the keys, but until you get in, you're going nowhere. You can see a bridge and even watch others go over it to the other side. But until you trust it yourself, you'll never make it across. 
So too, many people know about Jesus and even see others trusting him and the difference that it makes and yet never never personally trust him themselves. And the devastating result of this is missing out on the heavenly banquet because heaven is not something we earn by good deeds in this life. It is God's gift to those who trust Jesus Christ in this life. And then we come to the conclusion of the chapter. Verse 10 begins so beautifully. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. The hand of the Lord uses a metaphor of God's powerful and gracious presence. It will no longer move from place to place as it did with the tabernacle. Nor will it depart from Jerusalem because of the people's sin. Isaiah says it will rest on this mountain, on the heavenly Jerusalem. Never to move on, never to move away. This is where all of God's promises are fulfilled. This is where forgiven sinners belong. This is where God's presence is enjoyed forever. For those who, remember verse 9? Trusted in him. But the tragedy is, many people don't trust in him. And I think that's why this happy ending gets completely blown apart by devastation. To jolt us into kind of, whoa, what happened to the happy ending? We all have happy endings. What's going wrong here? Kind of jolts us into responding. Verse 10 continues with such a stark contrast. But Moab will be trampled in their land, and get this image, as straw is trampled down in manure. Moab and and sometimes Edom and and Babylon are real places, but in many parts of the Bible they're also used as kind of catch-all titles to represent all the nations and people groups who fail to trust God. And it may be like hostile rejection, you know, want no part of it. Um, it might be just like apathy, eh, whatever. Or, or it may be just a, a refusal to accept Jesus as Lord because, oh, quite frankly, I, I like my life the way it is. Whatever it looks like, Isaiah says they'll be trampled in their land. In other words, they're not going to get to the banquet. And Isaiah, quite frankly, he uses disgusting Language here, but very familiar to people from an agricultural background uh, explaining what happens. They will stretch out their hands in it. That's the manure. As swimmers stretch out their hands to swim, God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. Note the irony there of stretch out their hands as swimmers because they trusted in the cleverness of their hands. No matter what we do to try and make life good and pride ourselves in our achievements, if we exclude God, we end up like a swimmer in sewerage. That's a picture of shame, not glory. And definitely not joy. In fact, it's worse than that. Verse 12 finishes, he will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. That's the same as what God said 
back in Genesis 3 after the fall. For dust you are, and to dust you return. Now from this verse, and several others like it, some people hold on to an idea called annihilationism. Sorry about the big words today, but this is an idea that everyone who is not saved by God and goes to heaven will simply cease to exist at all when Jesus comes back to judge. Um, but we need to remember that we're reading prophecy, and prophecy uses lots of metaphors and images, and uh, Jesus is the one we need to look to to give us the full picture. And in six separate parables about heaven, he described the state of those who have missed out as weeping and gnashing of teeth. A terrible picture. It's a picture of deep regret. And conscious anguish. Isaiah really is a book of tough love. The question is, what do we want as we leave here today? Do we want the touch of God's loving hand at his banquet table with him in heaven forever? Or to be trampled under his feet in judgment? Verse 9 reminds us. It's a matter of trust. Amen.